0: Very highly concentrated in some states with only one or two carriers. In other places, you have competitive insurance markets.
1: Hello and welcome to Cast. I'm Susan Morse, Executive Editor of Healthcare Finance News. I am speaking to Alan Weil, who is Health Affairs Editor-in-Chief. Welcome, Alan.
0: Thank you, Susan. It's nice to be here. Yeah.
1: Nice to have you. Today, we're talking about healthcare spending and a specific Health Affairs Council on Healthcare Spending report. But I'd like to start by asking if you could tell us, please, your background. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about Health Affairs, please.
0: Yeah, well, Health Affairs is the leading peer reviewed health policy journal in the United States, although we have a reach around the world. Uh, we view our role is bringing evidence and knowledge and thought leadership to health policy, a broad range of health policy topics. We've been around for about 40 years and looking forward to at least 40 more. I'm the first editor-in-chief who didn't come out of journalism. That's sort of been the prior experience. I've been the editor-in-chief about eight and a half years. Before that, I ran the National Academy for State Health Policy, which is a independent nonprofit that works with states. I was at the Urban Institute leading a large research project uh, for uh, also about eight years. Before that, I ran the health financing agency in Colorado um, under Governor Roy Romer. My training is actually as a lawyer and I have a master's in public policy, but I've been working in healthcare for more than 30 years.
1: Um, I think all of that qualifies as journalism experience at some point because it, in policy especially, but I know I'm an avid reader of health affairs. I get a lot of information from it and we use it for healthcare finance news as our, our other publications do. I want to talk to you about a report that the Health Affairs Council on Healthcare Spending and Value Executive Summary um, uh, it just was released in February and it talked about healthcare spending and what's happened. And I'm wondering if you can start by talking about the report that says in the 1970s or since the 1970s, healthcare growth has outpaced economic growth. And why is this?
0: Well, let me just do a moment of background on the council. We'd actually never done anything like this before. We brought together 22 multidisciplinary folks under the leadership of former U.S. Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist and former FDA Commissioner uh, Peggy Hamburg. And uh, we spent a few years meeting uh, in person and then virtually during covid uh to take on an issue that literally has been in the pages of health affairs since the first issue more than 40 yeah. years ago which is why well, do we spend so much and how much can we afford to spend and can we get more out of the dollars we spend i think if you ask the economists they will tell you that the leading contributor to increased health spending over a long period of time is actually technological advances we can do things to cure people keep people alive, give them a better quality of life that we certainly couldn't do 10 years ago, and that we even more couldn't do 30 years ago. And those innovations cost money. Uh, They require investment. They require spending to uh, let people get the benefits of them. And that is the largest factor. But close in behind it is the problem of pricing, which is that we don't have particularly well-functioning markets in healthcare that in other sectors where you have technological advances, those can turn into cost savings in healthcare. You don't have the economic pressures to bring prices down. So you have this combination of higher intensity and higher prices. And what's the, the? this is just math. Uh, what you spend is <laughs> how much you buy times how much you pay for it. And if both of them are going up, then the, to- this, the uh, product of the two is going up.
1: Well, of course, CMS has tried to turn that around with price transparency, with hospitals being required to post their prices. But the report talks about administrative streamlining. Can you say what this is,
0: please? Yeah. So, you know, anyone who's interacted with the healthcare sector has filled out the same form in five different offices on the same day. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of attention recently to prior authorization, where in order to get approval for a treatment, you have to go through certain uh, uh, hoops. And there are debates about the the clinical side of that, but on the administrative side, of it, it's incredibly paperwork intensive. Uh, credentialing of providers is very resource intensive. Claims processing is resource intensive. And quality measurement, which we all know we need, Uh, They're just in uh, high levels of duplication or overlap or small variants from one measure to another that are probably not clinically important, but that drive costs. So when we talk about administrative streamlining, we're talking about uh, uh, literally hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that are not associated with direct provision of clinical care that if we could uh, cut down significantly, that would make a huge difference.
1: And of course, there's digital innovations to try to streamline a lot of this paperwork and finally throw away fax machines. Is this part of the report talking about any of these digital advances?
0: Well, you know, the 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 language one hears from the IT folks is if you just digitize a bad process, you don't actually end up <laughs> saving much. Yes. So, I mean, I think we have to do both, right? We do need to take advantage of the electronic health record instead of the fax machine, But frankly, if everyone's running a separate process and they use different measures or different fields and that you don't have interoperability, just putting things on the computer doesn't actually save you much. Uh, I I think, you know, we've invested tens of billions of dollars in this country in federal resources, much less what the private sector has invested in in, uh, electronic uh, records. Um, but we still know there's a long way to go in realizing the the, the uh, clinical benefits and the financial benefits.
1: I have to ask you this question, and it mostly comes from people who work outside of healthcare. that when we talk about the high cost, when they talk about what they spend, when they go to see a doctor for out-of-pocket, they say, why don't the CEOs just cut their salaries? If we stop paying them so much money, uh, we could save a ton of money. And can you explain, the, you know, how do you answer people who say things like this?
0: Well, you know, anything that's going to save money is going to have consequences. So if we want to do administrative streamlining, then each company can't come up with its own measures or its own way of doing things, and you lose some of the creativity. It is true that there are some eye popping salaries in healthcare. Uh, in in hospitals, in insurance companies, and elsewhere. And it is true that those are part of the administrative uh, burden of the whole system. I'm not going to suggest otherwise. Uh, The argument made by many is that you need to pay these high salaries to attract the the best talent. I'm not really in a position to evaluate whether 20% or 30% lower salaries would really mean a brain drain from healthcare into something else. That's not really my area of expertise. Uh, But, uh, you know, I think there's a lot we can do administratively to put uh, pressure on the system to be efficient. Maybe one of the consequences would be lower executive salaries. Um, But in the end, you've really got to, you know, we have a more than $4 trillion system. We're not going to save every dollar just out of Uh, salaries.
1: Right. Um, And another big issue that comes up when it comes down to saving money, people talk about value-based care. And I'm going to quote the report here, and I found this downright disheartening. Despite compelling theory, use of prominent value-based care payment models put forth by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation has not resulted in significant savings to payers, providers, or patients you know, this move to value-based care has been happening, and then we hear it's not really saving money. Um, Can you tell us what the report says about this and whether value-based care maybe in the future might have, you know, the outcome of saving money?
0: So, I'm really struck that there are half full and half empty uh, glass (laughs) people when it comes to value-based payment. It is certainly true. I mean, we reviewed the evidence, and we're not the only ones who've done it. The savings to date have been really quite modest given the rapid rates of growth in healthcare spending. The question is, are we learning the ingredients both from the payer side of how to structure value-based payment and from the provider side for how to provide care in a value-based context? And we're just not, neither side has kind of good enough yet at it. But over time, we're learning tools and techniques and ways to structure things that we will improve over time and will give us a better yield? Or is the overall enterprise sort of so fraught with problems and limitations and challenges that what we're seeing now is the best we're going to get? That's looking into the crystal ball, which it's hard for me to do. Um, I think uh, maybe this is uh, unfair to say, but I actually think it's some of both. I think many people believe that we have actually, although we've been talking about value-based care for a long time, we've actually, the the movements in that direction have been pretty modest. We've put a relatively modest amount of money into it. And even when the first line of payment is value-based, the payments out to providers are still largely fee-for-service. And as long as the payment structure is still fee-for-service, it's hard to see the benefits you would expect from value-based payment. But if we're going to do more of this and do it more aggressively, then we have to be more confident about things like risk adjustment, like avoiding gaming, like making sure we're getting the price right, that we know what the baselines are, that we know how to attribute patients appropriately to systems of care. And these are all, we might call them technical problems, but if we don't solve them, the whole enterprise is threatened. So what we call for in the report yeah, I don't think this is the most groundbreaking part of the report, but I think it's important, is that we need to continue down this path. Um, but we we and others have been saying this as well. It's time to start consolidating the lessons of what we've learned, go a little deeper in the areas that work and maybe shed some of the areas that we that we're finding are not so successful.
1: And you talk about groundbreaking. So I'd like to ask, what are some of the groundbreaking uh, results of this report?
0: Well, I think the most ambitious is our set of recommendations around uh, spending targets that we the group explicitly calls for state based infrastructure to measure healthcare spending, to set targets at spending and to measure progress against those targets and for the federal government to support that sort of infrastructure. Now, what those targets are going to be and how people are going to respond to them is going to vary quite a bit around the country. But one of you know our most read paper every year in health affairs is the national health expenditures paper where we pr- publish the health the the CMS actuaries uh, historical review and future projections of what we're going to spend. They do an incredible job, but our data infrastructure to even understand what we spend and who's spending what and where the money's going is really weak. The other thing is, and I try to emphasize this at every opportunity, the aggregate levels of spending are very high, certainly by global standards. But behind those aggregates, there are under-resourced systems that are serving very Hard to serve, hard to reach populations that have very high needs. And there are flush systems that are making a lot of money and serving people uh, and and uh, but able to have a pretty good margin doing that. And so we need if if you're if you're going to try to tackle the problem, you have to uh, diagnose it uh, correctly And national numbers on spending really don't give you much of a handle. Even states in some instances will be too big, but at least it would move us in a direction of of having a more granular uh, understanding of where the money is. And that then makes it easier to think about what your priorities are and what you might need to do to get to
1: Is it as simple as urban versus rural? Is that what you're talking about?
0: No. Uh, uh, No, it really isn't, although there are definitely urban-rural differences. I mean, hospital, so hospitals are more than a third of spending in healthcare. Hospital markets, first of all, they cross states. Uh, You have urban centers that are serving rural populations because they don't have access to the care they need in their rural areas. Uh, You have, of course, academic medical centers. You have uh, community nonprofits. You have public uh systems. Um it, so it isn't just urban versus rural. We also have big regional differences in uh the role of uh of investor-owned for-profit systems relative mm-hmm. to nonprofit systems, the, even the structure of healthcare practice and the structure of the insurance sector. Uh, uh, insurance is very highly concentrated in some states with only one or two carriers. In other places, you have competitive insurance markets. States, look, I ran the National Academy for State Health Policy for a while. States are not a perfect uh, unit of analysis because even within states, you have tremendous heterogeneity. But in a country as large as ours, at least it's a, it's a step closer to where many of these uh, decisions are made and where many of these actions occur. And and they give you, I think, leverage for understanding that you just can't have if you're looking at this nationally.
1: Thank you, Alan. The last question I have for you is, this report makes recommendations. What would you like to see happen? What do you expect? to see happen with these recommendations.
0: Well, I love that you asked the question, you know, at health affairs, we play the long game. We're in, we're in the (laughs) academic publishing business. We publish an article today and it may not make its way into policy for five years or 15 years. We're not trying to do tomorrow's headlines. Frankly, the issue of health spending, and we talked about this at the council uh, during the COVID pandemic, People were not focused so much on, oh, we're spending too much. They were focused on how are we going to keep the health system afloat through this crisis. So I think it's going to be a few years before people are back to the question of, wait a minute, you know, we're we're back to high levels of growth, even though we're at a different stage of the pandemic. Um, We have, I believe, state and federal policy audience. Uh, There are fewer local recommendations here, although I think they'll see it. I think the health sector, frankly, and I guess this is where I would close. uh, Whenever there's this kind of pressure on a system, you ask the question about salaries, the pressure comes from the outside. We're going to make better answers if we figure out from the inside how to do things better. And so I would hope that people in the health sector who look at this will feel some courage to make some strong recommendations how to address a spending problem that we that other people are paying for so that we can come up with uh, solutions and ideas that work uh, from the perspective of those who are in the system as opposed to having something imposed from the outside.
1: That is a good place to close, Alan. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on Cast.
0: It was uh, great talking to you, Susan. Thank you for having me on today.